Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know we'll be talking about pregnancy loss. If this is too difficult for you right now, please check out the show notes for some resources. We're talking about this today so that you know you're not alone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Moments, a podcast that celebrates parenthood to the fullest, the smallest victories, the messiest failures, and the bravest decisions. Today, we're talking with a mom, a writer, a blogger, and a cookbook author. She's had three, three cookbooks make the New York Times bestseller list. She's made gluten-free, grain-free lifestyles feel not only attainable, but so delicious. She's Asher, Ayla, Easton, and Kezia's mom, Danielle Walker. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. I really appreciate you sitting down and having a chat with me today um, about, obviously, the parenthood journey, but I think within that journey, it's our own journey. Right. And where we came from, where where we are, and where we want to go. And so I just first want to start with What was your journey towards food? Yeah, it actually really was born out of necessity. Uh, I mean, I grew up in an Italian family and my grandmother to this day, she's 86, she still makes like massive Italian feasts and my whole extended family gets together. So I definitely grew up with food having a pretty like strong component to more kind of just like family and community. Um, But I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease when I was 22. Uh, right out of college, just a couple of months out of college and two months after my husband and I got married um, and spent a few years in and out of hospitals and on really debilitating doses of medications. And finally, kind of after a few years, found that food could make a huge difference. So really, that's kind of when my passion for food came about. It came first from feeling like I was never going to get to enjoy food again, honestly. It was like this, oh my gosh, I'm 22 years old and I can't eat anything that tastes great for the rest of my life. Um, But then after time, just like really looking into what I could and couldn't eat and realizing what my body could and couldn't process, I was like, okay, I can actually enjoy this food. I just have to kind of relearn it all and relearn how to cook, plus also what is going into the things that I'm making and, and what kind of swaps to make. Did you notice right away the difference in how you felt? when you started eating better or was it something that kind of just happened over time? I didn't see as much improvement at the beginning because it was like a few days here and a few days there and, you know, a bite of this and not a bite of that. But there was a point in time, um, it was probably, gosh, five or so years into my journey, maybe six. um, And my oldest son, who's almost 11, he was nine months old and I had one of the worst flare-ups of my life and I was hospitalized for multiple weeks. And 
when I got out was when I finally said like, okay, I've seen food have this effect on me, but maybe I haven't really given it like a good solid try. And now I've got this life that's depending on me and I don't want to miss out on that. And so when I really dove in and did, I did an elimination diet, you know, eliminated all of the potentially inflammatory foods. Um, I saw like a 75% improvement in my symptoms within 48 hours. So that was really like the most drastic moment. (laughs) And it really showed me, okay, I really have to be like all in and strict on this or my body's not going to have the time that it needs to heal. So that, yeah, that was the most like eye-opening moment for me where I really saw the correlation of what I was and wasn't eating and how it could affect the inflammation in my body and the symptoms that I was experiencing. Obviously, um, as an athlete, you know, changing my diet, I have had over eight knee surgeries and I've had shoulder surgeries and things like that. And you get inflammation in different parts of your body and you realize when you eat a certain way, you don't, you feel better. And, you know, learning that and really buying into that, I think was an extreme process, but you've decided to share it with others, which I think is so powerful. You not only empower yourself, but you empower others to see that this can work. What was your first decision to kind of share that with others and to become you know, a blogger for food as well as for for parenting. Yeah, it was twofold. Um, One was I spent so many years searching for alternatives to the medications that I was on because the the symptoms and the side effects were so terrible. And, you know, I kept searching and searching. So when I finally realized food could help, it was kind of this like, oh my gosh, I wasted so much of my life. I wish somebody would have told me this earlier. And so that was really the number one kind of driving force was starting the blog was like, if I can help one person or, you know, just somebody that, that they won't have to suffer as long as I did. And I can tell them that food could potentially, you know, make a huge impact in their disease or their day-to-day life, then that would be worth it. And then two, I was testing all these recipes in my kitchen and I was like sharing them with family and friends. And, you know, I, I started the blog more of just a way to kind of share all that information in one spot because everybody kept asking, like, can I get the recipe for that? Or, you know, how'd you make that? And so that was really where it started. My my son was little at the time, and I had just left my job to stay at home with him for a bit. And my husband encouraged me. He's like, you should start a blog. And this was, I mean, he was born in 2010. So this was kind of in the beginning of like the blogging world still. Um, so he helped me set it up. And it was really just intended for like my mom and my grandma and my sister to be able to get the recipes. Um, and then it started to pick up steam from there, which I would have never expected that a blog could become a career either. I had no intentions of that. To be so open and honest about your food, your family and all that stuff, it it, it had to be difficult at first. Um, how did you get to a place where you wanted to share and you wanted to, to, to blog when this was a time, like you said, back in 2010, 2011, you know, you weren't seeing podcasts and blogs and people, you know, right. that wasn't out there as much as it is now. Yeah. You know, I mean, I started slowly and again, because I didn't think anybody that I didn't know would be actually reading it. It was a little easier to be kind of honest. But then as I got started, I started getting emails. And at that point, Instagram wasn't around, so not DMs, but like Facebook messages and handwritten letters to like a PO box that we set up of other people's stories. And from, I mean, so many different, different autoimmune diseases and ailments. And they were sharing their stories and sharing how, you know, me sharing mine helped them. 
And so really that was kind of, you know, just the moment where I was like, okay, if I can just be vulnerable and honest with people, then there's a chance that I could help somebody. And that's kind of just always been the way I've tried to go about it. And I've always looked at, you know, my pain and suffering, which was really, I mean, I almost lost my life to this disease quite a few times um, in the early days and then actually a, a bad setback about a year and a half ago. And I just said, I can't change my circumstances. I can't, you know, this, I can't do anything about this. This is life. This is what I've been dealt. But what I can do is try to use it for good. And that's kind of the way that my husband and I have just always made the decisions about what we will share and how much we'll share and how we go about sharing it. It's always we sit down and just say, okay, I've written this. Like if we put this out to the world, is there a chance that it could help somebody? And it doesn't, you know, make my pain or my suffering go away, but it does feel like it gives it some purpose. Um, and it's really nice to see something that's so painful become beautiful in a sense and, and see other people, you know, be impacted by it and potentially help them. That's unbelievable because I think what's so much, so powerful in whatever journey you're, you know, you're going through, I think it's important to have a community and it's important to, to build those around you that have, you know, the same morals and values and, and goals and on days that maybe one of us struggles, you know, the community uplifts us. And I've found that motherhood has given me that community in a sense of being able yeah, to absolutely. relate to others. For me, I always dreamed of being a mom. I, I played with dolls until I was almost 13, 14 years old just because I <laughs> wanted to have children. And I was the kid in college that was constantly trying to babysit everybody's kids and I, I was the little sister, so I didn't have a younger sibling to really take care of, but I always dreamed of it. Was that something that mm -hmm. was a part of your journey? Did you always dream of having kids? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel like everything you just said, I, I could say, um, yes, I was the youngest as well. And I was the girl who like packed away my Barbie dolls when I was 13, saving them for like when I had to have kids or like, you know, the American girl doll. Like I always was thinking of that from a young age of like, oh, I'm eventually gonna have kids. I'm gonna save this dress or like my prom dress. So yes, very much so. And I was like in the church nursery on Sundays, babe, like watching the kids and babysitting. I mean, like putting flyers out around the neighborhood to babysit and make money also. I feel like I've kind of always had the entrepreneurial spirit as well, but I've always been the one that's like around and loved children and babies. And so, yes, definitely has always been my my thought, my dream. So when you first found out that you were expecting, what was that feeling like? Um, you know, just in terms of you shared it with everyone. Like, was that, you know, was that everything that you dreamed of? Oh, gosh. Yeah. My husband and I actually just found the video of me telling him that I was pregnant with Asher, our oldest. Um, my first pregnancy, unfortunately, ended in a loss. So sorry. Um, but that but that feeling, though, yes. I mean, it was something that I couldn't believe was actually finally happening. Um, and you just start planning, you know, from the minute you find out. Um, but yes, it was the best. It was the best feeling all of the times. Um, I mean, every time you find out that there's a new life, you're just like ecstatic, I think. Well, at least we were. I know everybody's a little different, but I just started imagining what life could be like before you even know, you know, if it's a boy or a girl or whatnot. I remember when I was little, um, my dad coming in and, you know, I was playing dolls and I had named all my kids. I was going to have four kids <laughs> and they were all going to be named, you know, I think it was like Aaliyah and like, I don't even remember the names. And I had middle names and all this stuff. And my dad was like, so 
like the dad doesn't get any say. Like there's no your partner. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's no. I was like, nope, I'm gonna name. Nope, nope, I'm gonna name. <laughs> so that process, like bringing life into the world, was it everything that you anticipated? Um, yeah, I, I mean, aside from we've we've actually had two losses. Um, aside from that, my pregnancies all were relatively easy. Um, I mean, uh, well, physically, I will say, emotionally, and especially after going through loss, my my last two who are here, Easton and Kezia, those were rough. Um, just you, you just, all your kind of ideals that you grew up with, you know, are gone. And I think that is the hardest part of going through loss is, you know, you do grow up just thinking like you get pregnant, you have a baby. That's just what your brain thinks as a, as a kind of naive young woman, you know, and, and for the most part that does happen for, for a lot of people, but it was difficult to go through those subsequent pregnancies, just knowing like something could go wrong. Um, and not, not being kind of in that just jovial, like naive spirit that you had, you know, in the first go around. I think you, you hit on the fact that a lot of people don't talk about the stuff that we're talking about today and, you know, authenticity. I was able to have a conversation with Tia Mori, uh, previously and just how authentic it is now. Uh, compared to even years ago when people didn't talk about the struggles. We magnify, you know, the triumphs and the celebration. So just in terms of obviously being, you know, in the public eye, being a blogger, having having a book, how hard is it to share authentically with your community that you've built? Oh, it's a decision. Um, I, there's not really a decision between being authentic or inauthentic in terms of those types of things. It's either sharing or you don't, in my opinion. Um, and specifically for our loss, we had shared that I had a, my second book was coming out and my daughter was going to be born right around the same time. So it was kind of this like big announcement and we had, you know, people had walked through it with us through sickness and through my oldest being born and all of that. And so I was very excited, of course, when I found out I was pregnant. And so after we had announced and then found out that she had some genetic abnormalities, we, for, I mean, we went back and forth for a long time, but our decision at that point was like, okay, everybody's already walking through this with us. They know that I'm pregnant. We've announced that it's either like you just go silent, you know, and then come back later after whatever happens, happens and and have to relive it or you let them walk through it with you and hope that you can either be helping somebody else that's going through something similar or maybe somebody that's a little ahead of you in the game could come, you know, alongside of you and support you too. Um, and just that kind of solidarity that you find with with sharing something like that. Um, I just felt like being honest and open with my community was the best thing. And so I just said, okay, I've got this public place to be able to do this. And if somebody, you know, that might go through this in a couple years, you know, read my story or saw something that, that they could be somewhat more prepared for that, I think would be really helpful. And something that we noticed with our first loss, um, which was more of a miscarriage, um, my daughter was almost full term, but was just so many people that we knew came out of the woodworks and were like, oh, I had a miscarriage 20 years ago or, you know, so-and-so. And you're like, wow, I, you never said that before. I can't believe I didn't know that, you know? And um, I think women are 
willing and wanting to share. I think they just don't know how sometimes. Um, and I think they're expected to suffer silently a lot of the times too, you know, and, and that's not something that's easily done. Um, but it makes people uncomfortable, you know, around you and they don't know how to handle it. And so I think a lot of times parents who have lost, lost babies or lost pregnancies just kind of internally take it because they don't want anybody around them to feel uncomfortable or, you know, to not know how to help them or how to, you know, ask them what they need and, and things like that. So it was kind of a, a hope, a hope of, of being able to help other women be able to grieve more publicly and also to be able to share in each other's struggles. I know every woman has their own journey, but what can you say to those women out there that feel alone and feel like, you know, there's nobody else that is experiencing this because people usually put out there the good and the things that they're going through or when they've already come through something and they have a chance to reflect. But you walking through it, I mean, that that had to really be tough, but also healing at the same time. It was. Um, I would say, I mean, the advice that I would give to any woman that's walking through it that does feel alone is to find somebody. Talk about it as much as you can. And I think that's the hardest thing for so many women is that they feel like their heart is never going to move on. I mean, they will never forget that child, but the, to them, it feels like the rest of the world has. And so it's it's one thing that I've learned over the years is just, you know, from another side, from somebody who's walk, watching somebody go through it to help them remember that child, you know, whether it's saying their name um, when they, when you talk to them or putting the birth date in your calendar and just texting them every year to just say that you're remembering with them. I think, you know, if you can be that person or if you're going through it and you can find that person. Wow. Um, what you said about remembering to put in your calendar and to reach out. I think a lot of us and a lot of individuals, when things get hard or there's difficult situations and you don't know what to say, you don't say anything. And there's silence. And with that breeds more alone, like you feel more alone because you feel like you're going through this by yourself. And I think what you said is um, truly helpful for those out there that want to help someone and want to be there. Because I think sometimes they don't know how. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I found. My husband and I found that. I mean, it deeply affected our friendships, our close family even. There's some relationships that never have been fully repaired from that because they don't know what to say. And one thing I've heard, you know, is I don't want to remind you of her. People are afraid that they might dig up something or they might say something wrong. And I can honestly, from every woman that I've talked to and from our own experience, you can never remind somebody of the child they lost because they're never forgotten. You know, it's every single day, every single moment. When I look at my three kids, I see the my daughter Ayla that's not here, you know, and it's, so it's not any, nobody saying her name or asking a question would I mean, it might make me emotional for sure, <laughs> um, but it would never, you know, cause something, something to come up that I like somehow buried. Um, and quite honestly, having somebody say her name or remember her or ask a question about her is like 
the best thing for a mom to hear. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's like my number one advice when people ask what they can do is just to remember with them. You know, I've got a couple friends now that were brought into my life because of this and were like closest, I mean, my closest friends. And it's in my calendar every year to remember their babies, their names, to text them with their names, you know, and I know, I know from when I get that, that it's just one of the most meaningful things to know that people still remember, you know, and it's never going to be as deep for them and they're not going to remember as much as you, but just knowing that somebody is consciously caring enough about you to like enter into that sadness, because that's hard for people to do. They don't want to, they don't want to go there, you know, that's not like a natural human feeling to want to enter into somebody else's grief, but, but we need it. Something else that we don't normally talk about is you had a son. You were trying to navigate this loss while still being there and showing up for your son. And I think it's so important for us to talk about how you're able to parent while still going through something as traumatic as as that had to be. Yeah, I wish there was more out there about that. Um, that was one thing I remember. I mean, I could find books on loss and, you know, infant loss and pregnancy loss, but I couldn't find really much about how to handle your your kids that were already here and how to do that. Um, and it's it's been a constant. I mean, as they grow, they have different questions and, you know, different ways of processing it. Um, my husband and I, when I was still pregnant, when we knew that that my daughter may not make it after birth, we went and saw like a child counselor, not with him, but just the two of us and just kind of asked, you know, like, what, what do we do? Like, how do we tell him now? Do we wait and see what happens? You know, how do we talk to him about it? And the best advice she gave us that I feel like I've used in so many different things now with parenting is to let the child lead. And she said, you know, just tell him one thing and then he might ask you a series of questions, he might say, okay, and run off and play with the truck, you know, and, and he was three, three and a half at the point, at that point, maybe almost four. Um, so, I mean, old enough to understand that, you know, mom's belly's growing and that there's a baby in there, old enough, she, if he felt her kick, you know, named her, well, he wanted to name her Lightning McQueen. Um, so, and old enough though, you know, it's not like he was like 18 months or 20, 20 months, like he, he was, you know, understanding of that. And so we knew we needed to obviously tell him, you know, um, and so, but that, that advice of just letting him lead really was what helped us in terms of the conversations of just kind of walking through with him, um, and, and to not be offended if I did tell him something and I'm crying and then he's goes off and plays with the truck, you know, it's like, that's just kids' brains. And sometimes that's the way that they process things. Um, but one of the other things too, and you know, I mean, there were a few things, but when we came home from the hospital and she didn't come home with us, um, we brought a little stuffed animal that he had bought her, um, and told him that she wanted him to have it before she went to heaven. And there, the, the questions and the things that come out of little kids' mouths can actually be really healing for a parent and a different way of looking at things, you know? I mean, he was... He was sad and he got mad some of the time, but some of the things that he said of just like, oh, did, did Jesus come down on stairs and take her back up in her car seat? And it's heartbreaking, but it's also like, he almost was kind of like, oh, well, she gets to be in heaven. That's cool. And I was like, okay, you know, like trying to, to kind of have that childlike faith and just, you know, that's just what it was for him. Um, but the two friends that I mentioned both have daughters. It was really, really helpful for me to watch how they incorporated those girls into their like family life. 
Um, and because each of them were quite a few years ahead of me in kind of the journey. And so just like the little things of, you know, one, one's daughter was born around Christmas. And so every year on her birthday, they pull their other kids out of school and they bake cookies and they watch Christmas movies. And that's just like their thing. Um, you know, and, and the other one, um, planted a tree that was like the type of tree that was growing, you know, around the time that she was born. And, um, and so it was just helpful for me to look and say like, okay, these people are actually remembering their, their kids. They're honoring their lives. They're not just like forgetting about them. They're telling their other kids that come after them even, you know, and then they grow up just knowing that they have this sibling that's not here, but, but that's still part of the family. And so that was helpful for us as we kind of tried to figure out how to navigate that. We like hang a stocking and my son and I go to Target and we pick out a bunch of toys for like the age that our daughter would be and we go donate them at the hospital. Um, or we, you know, we have a, a little girl that's from Uganda that we sponsor that has the exact same birth date and year as Ayla. And it's little things like that just to show, you know, show them that we still remember her and we honor her life and that we wish she was here. But if there's something else that we can do, you know, good for somebody else that, that is here, um, then that's, that's helpful. And they talk about her all the time. And my oldest like draws her in pictures sometimes. And it's just been really interesting to watch because, you know, as he grows, he's just got a different understanding of, of death and loss and, and, and all of that. And, and then to see my now younger ones who weren't around when she was born and died, you know, to, to start to talk about her. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to watch their brains kind of start to process some of that over the years. It's interesting what you said about how we try to tell children how we feel and we want them to feel the same way. I mean, that's natural as a parent. And by continuing to talk about her and continuing to, you know, allow your children to express the way they feel and whatever emotion that they have has been extremely powerful, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, they, they need that to be able to process it, I think. There is one thing, I mean, that we were pretty conscious of in the beginning was letting him see sadness, though, because I kind of grew up in a family where things were kind of brushed under the rug and, you know, it was okay to feel, but like there was also a point where you just needed to stop and like everything needed to be normal. And I mean, there was, I mean, to a certain extent, because it was a pretty dark time for me and I didn't need a three and a half year old seeing all of that, but seeing me cry, you know, if we talked about her or, you know, just things like that. I think it was good for him to get to see like, okay, this is okay. It's okay if I feel sad because mom's sad, you know, but then we can also go and have fun together, you know, and go mini golfing. I mean, maybe not during those first few months, but I think it's, it was good for him to see that grief and joy can kind of happen simultaneously. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to our Capital One Cafe Break. Each week, we'll chat with a Capital One parent about their relationship with family and finances. Today, we're talking with Ryan Ball, a vice president of Capital One's branch and cafe customer experience. Welcome, Ryan. What does an average day look like for you? I know you've got two little ones. Tell me about your kids, your daily life. Maybe it's pandemic life. Um, how does that look for you? I'll start off by saying there is no average day. That's really, you just summed up probably all of my thoughts on parenthood. <laughs> um, early in my career, prior to having children, I thought I could empathize with parents. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong. And I'm not sure anyone could have explained it to me in a way where I could relate, to be honest. It's kind of like when you're going to have a child, everybody's got advice and books and all this stuff. Well, when, when you have the baby, it's like, 
okay, you're not usually dusting a book off. <laughs> you're like, I got to keep this thing alive. <laughs> you know, and care for this. Job. Yeah, job. like my job. That is like my job. <laughs> and I'm sleeping one hour a night. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay. So how do you deal with those, you know, quote unquote, guilty moments where you have to be present at work and you're not able to kind of be, you know, present as a father? I'm not sure I'll ever figure it out, honestly, but I'll tell you what has been <clears throat> helping is um, I actually try to show myself grace. I need to coach myself out of guilt because what I might be actually doing is elevating them, even though I'm not there in that moment. And that is really, really hard. It's kind of like, what is my role as a father in this day and age? A lot of people don't want to ask questions because they, they're fearful that they're going to look stupid or, you know, maybe somebody thinks a certain way or whatever. But nine times out of 10, the person to the left of you is like wanting to ask the same thing. What does Capital One offer working parents? Like, how has that experience been? I can't imagine a better experience for me. I'd say the empowerment and understanding for flexibility. I have like... I couldn't even tell you a story where I didn't feel supported and wasn't offered my own choice. So how do you navigate now as a father having those conversations about money? Um, and how do you see that changing as they get older? So to me, I think the money conversation, it, it, there is so much diversity in how to answer that, that I can't really answer that for others. Because it depends on your level of education, knowledge, access to resources. Like if you're in a situation where you can't save money, you know, that's not the same as if you are and you want to coach somebody on how to save money. But the conversation I do have about money with my son, who's four, and coincidentally, Father's Day was recently. And one of the exercises they did at work was, you know, what does your dad do? You know, they ask a couple questions. And, you know, one of the things, you know, he, he kind of was like, oh, my dad like works at the office. You know, and I thought, well, have I actually talked to him about what I do? And I, you know, I, I have, but not now he's four, which is different than when he was three and 10 months, you know, it, like the progress is so wild. And so I told him, I said, you know, here's what I do. I try to keep people's money safe and help them feel good about it. And that's different for everybody. We, you know, at Capital One, we believe it's, it's, you know, a choose your own adventure to some degree. You know, it's, it's like we're in this together. <laughs> like, I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out. It's like you and I are doing right now. Like, I don't know the answer to parenting. If you find anyone that has it, you let me know. As parents, we know that when it comes to our kids, it's not do as I say, it's do as I do. When it comes to modeling financial literacy, Capital One's got your back. Capital One is introducing the next generation to saving and setting financial goals and building tools and resources for parents to reinforce positive financial habits with your kids. They make it easier for us to raise money-wise kids with their Money Teen Checking Account. It helps kids learn how to manage their own money while giving parents oversight into their journey. Learn more by going to CapitalOne.com forward slash team checking. Welcome back to Moments with Candace Parker. I, I define parenthood as being able to live again through the eyes of your children. Like you're, be, you're able to see things in a different way that you didn't see growing up and the different experiences. And again, um, you were able to conceive 
after such a traumatic loss. And, you know, I can only imagine just the different emotions that you were going through. Yeah. Um, gosh, if I'm being completely honest, I thought that getting pregnant again would kind of just fix everything. I knew it wouldn't replace her and I never wanted to, but I kind of was like, all right, as soon as I can have another baby, like I'm going to be okay. And I think a lot of women feel that way because I felt the same when we lost our first pregnancy. It was kind of like, just get to the next thing, you know, and have something to look forward to and then it'll make life easier. And honestly, my pregnancy with my son Easton, who'll be six in August, was one of the most difficult emotional and just like mental pregnancies of, of all of them, just because I was so fearful, first of all. Um, I didn't realize how much grieving and how much I, I how much pain I hadn't processed yet. Um, I think I got pregnant with him maybe six months after she passed away, um, which if I'm if I'm being honest, I mean, he is like such a joy and the light to our life. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't repeat or I wouldn't go back and change anything. But I probably would have waited a little longer just to like heal a little bit more. I mean, physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually, there was just a lot that I hadn't worked through yet. Um, and to the point where like I was going through in, in therapy after we lost her and I quit like the minute I found out I was pregnant. So I was like, I'm going to be fine. I don't need it anymore. And I wish that I would have worked through a little bit more because it was not until I got into that hospital room, I ended up having to have a C-section with him because he was 10 pounds, um, that I like went into the operating room not knowing if I wanted him or not. And I, it's so hard to say that. And I've shared it here and there, but, and now like looking at him, I'm like, I mean, at the minute he was placed in my arms, I fell in love with him, but I just was so scared that I wasn't going to be able to love him, that he wasn't, you know, his sister and, you know, that the, I was going to have these conflicting emotions about it. And then the side of just so fearful something was going to happen to him that he, you know, something would happen when we got home or in some anything that could go wrong. I just always had that, you know, at like the front of my mind. So it was it was difficult, but I am we're, I'm so grateful for him because once he was here, he was like exactly what we needed. He's this little ham with curly hair and he danced like crazy as like a toddler and he just was smiley and happy and when he was little and he just, I mean, he was totally what we needed at the time. Um, but the pregnancy was really hard. I also had a really, really hard time, which I think this is not talked about either <laughs> um, because it's always kind of like the... Just, I just want a healthy baby, but I had a really difficult time with the gender. Like I, because I, I had a girl and I was pregnant with a girl and I had all those, the, you know, I saved those Barbies for her. And like, I imagined the nail salons and the daddy daughter dances and like just all those little things, you know, and then that got, that got ripped away from me. And so when I got pregnant again, my brain was already there. And so to find out it was a boy was really hard for me. Um, now in hindsight, I'm really glad it was because I think there's just such a, a good kind of gap. Like they're just, they were very different babies and, you know, he wasn't a replacement for her. Um, but I struggled with that a lot through my pregnancy. I struggled a lot with connecting with him because it just, it, it wasn't what I was expecting or, you know, what I had hoped for in the past. There is, um, a term called rainbow baby. Um, one of my friends actually had a child after losing um, her daughter. And that was the first time I had heard that term. <laughs> Rainbow baby. Yeah, I wrote an article for the Today Show actually about that. Um, and I did not like the term at first. And I still wouldn't say I use it all the time. Um, I was opposed to it because I felt like 
the way that it was described to me was like you go through this terrible storm and then after the storm comes a rainbow. And so that's kind of what that baby's meant to be. And when I, I mean, like I just said, when I, I got the rainbow, but I was still in the storm. And I think that was hard for me because I'm like, yes, the rainbow is beautiful. But usually when there's a rainbow, you know, it's these bright blue skies. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, you can actually sometimes see a rainbow in a cloudy, you know, sky when it's raining. And so those two things can happen at the same time. And that was where I was like, okay, I could, I can, I can get on board with this term, you know, as long as it's not erasing the past. Everybody that I know that does have a, a, a baby after loss, a rainbow baby, they just say they're similar to like the way I described Easton. They're just like joyful and happy. And I think they're totally brought to this earth to try to help heal and make their parents, you know, whole again. Um, and that's totally what he was for us. But, but it's, you know, it doesn't come without, I feel like without storms throughout um, and especially during the pregnancies because once you've had a loss, whatever, you know, whether it's early or, you know, late term or even just, or post, you know, with infants, it's just your eyes are opened up to so much. I just remember, you know, and especially sharing publicly and getting so many people's stories, like I had no idea that there were so many things that could go wrong during pregnancy and so many different diseases and ailments and, you know, things that could happen. Um, and so you, all, you also kind of enter into that rainbow pregnancy knowing, you know, so much more. And, and you have to, you know, I said this on that article that you have to choose faith over fear every single day. And that's not an easy thing to do, but you can't, you know, I mean, it, it just can't survive going through a pregnancy being fearful all the time. So you have to make this conscious effort to just be like, they're going to be okay. You know, they're going to be healthy, like in, in, you know, not putting your head in the sand, but, but trying to have faith and trying to live through the pregnancy and, and the birth of, of just like holding on to that hope. That has to be really difficult with the difference of emotion. So that had to put stress on your marriage as well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the statistics of marriages that fail after a loss is staggering. It's like, I mean, it's already high in the United States, but with child loss added to it, it's it's very, very high. I actually think going through my disease and so much trauma at the beginning of our marriage did help set us up for success, if you will, in making it through. Um, because we had learned how to communicate early because of that. And we learned how to communicate our feelings early because of my disease. Um, and then, you know, I think one thing, and I can't remember if somebody told me this or if it was something that I, that I realized, just as I wouldn't expect my husband to sit on the ground and, you know, sob like I did for hours on end or curl up in a ball in my bed and not get out for three days, like he, he wouldn't expect me to just get up and like go to work or go for a run or, you know, it's like you have to realize that, that, he, that each person has their own way of processing it and you can't force them into your way of processing it because that's where it gets hard. And that's not to say, I mean, there were so many times where I was so frustrated or mad or sad because I was like, you're forgetting her. Like, you know, and I was wondering, like, I'm like, do you even care? Do you know, are you forgetting her? And that's just, that was his way. And and he talks about her all the time. I mean, not as much as I do, but I know he didn't forget her and I know he was deeply grieving, but his way of doing that was different. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that and to give each other that space to be able to feel and do the things that they need to do to get through it. Um, but it is not an easy 
thing to go through, to get through and to go through. And, you know, I mean, I think in, aside from your spouse with the relationships, kind of like you mentioned, there's a lot of shame and guilt around that too, because you're just trying to literally, you're trying to live every day. Like you, there, there are days where I did not want to come back. Like I'd go for a hike and I was hoping I would not come home. Um, and there were days where I did not want to get out of bed. And thankfully I had my son and my husband to, to push through for, um, but friendships and like family, you know, relationships were hard because of that. And you feel guilty because you're not there for everybody. And there was a piece of advice that, that, really helped me and that one of those women just said like this is the time in your life where you just need to be selfish and they were like you need to focus inward like on you your husband and your son and everything else around you is too much you don't have bandwidth for it um just you can't you can't be there for everybody right now and they're like you've got to take care of yourself protect your heart was what somebody said and and get through it and then hopefully those people are close enough that they'll be there when you're ready to come out of it um but if you can't like if you can't survive on your own, then you're nothing for anybody else. And that was that was huge for me because I am a people pleaser and I'm very much like I want I want to be there for everybody. And so it was really difficult for me to feel like I'm like I'm a terrible friend, I'm a terrible sister, I'm a terrible daughter. Like that was difficult and a, and a terrible wife for a long time too. A friend of mine, uh, she lost her son, and she said that there's a number of people that want to call her and talk. And she says, there's very few that call and say, like, what do you need? You know, what do you need? And she said that that's the most powerful help that she's received is sometimes just sitting on the bed and not talking, you know, just sometimes being on the phone and not speaking or listening or asking what they want, you know, just to show that you can be there. And I think people always have to feel like they're doing something when they're there, when not at all, like sometimes you can just be there and just your yeah, presence. I think enough. that's, I think that's very true. I think, yeah, there's not many times I don't think that a mother would want to talk a lot after that. Um, but I think, like I said, like hearing their name, just knowing that they're, that they're there. And if you just need to sit and cry, that that's okay. And that, you know, like you're not trying to move on to kind of the next thing. And I think too, you know, I mean, asking what, what can I do similarly to when you bring a new baby home, you know? What can I do for you? But I think in that period, I mean, you're you're going through so much. And so a lot of times you don't even know what you need. Um, and so for me, like one of the most helpful things was more of like the assertive, like, I'm coming by to get Asher. I'm taking him to the park for two hours. Like, we'll be back in a little bit, you know? And it's like, those are things you're like, okay, like, I didn't even know I needed that. But I yes, but that. like, I need yeah. that, you know, or I'm dropping a meal off. Do not answer the door. Just I'm putting it on your doorstep. You do not like, you know, because that's that's that same thing of like feeling like, okay, now I've got to answer the door and I've got to put a smile on and I've got to say thank you and I've got to talk to this person. And they might ask questions that like I don't really want to answer again because I've already said it 20 times. So those little things of like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a meal on your doorstep. When you're done, you know, text me and put it back on the doorstep and I will come pick it up. And again, for, for everyone that's listening, I, I read Faith Instead of Fear, your blog post that you wrote. And, um, you know, I would obviously encourage everyone to, if you're struggling with a loss, to to read Faith Instead of, Instead of Fear and Grateful of the mm. Time We Were Given. Because honestly, Thank they were you. extremely powerful, authentic, and you have been able to help so many. You've talked about having your daughter. And you've also talked about having your second daughter. Yeah. What was that like? And 
what were the emotions when you when you found out that you were having a, another girl? Oh my goodness, um, uh, so much. Um, her name's Kezia, and she's just she was like a bomb for our hearts. Um, she's just so much joy and. And really, I mean, it, it, it is like all the things I dreamt of doing, I'm starting to get to do with her. Um, and to get to see her like understand that she has a sister um, has been huge because that was my biggest fear. It was like, I don't, she's never going to replace her. I don't, but then also like, I don't want her to feel like she's, you know, second fiddle either to like our first daughter. So I was very, I, I mean, it was hard. Um, and I like, I mean, at one point, I think I even saved a bunch of Ayla's clothes thinking like, well, if we ever have another little girl, you know, she can wear them. And it just didn't feel right. Like when she came home and I had them, those clothes, I was like, nope, these were meant for Ayla. And like, I had a different image in my head of what she would be like. And these are not meant for Kezia. And it, it's been kind of this natural you know, kind of separation of the two, but, um, it was, I was very, very happy. I did not let myself hope for it. Um, which I just was too, I was too scared that I'd be let down again. Um, so through the whole pregnancy, I was like, I'm just not going to hope either way. I'm just going to, you know, whatever it is, it is. Um, so when I found out she was a girl, I, I mean, sobbing, calling my husband. Um, but yeah, she's, she's so sweet. Um, and as you know, I mean, I think bringing her home, there were, there were definitely conflicting emotions and feelings, but really for her, the the biggest was just joy and just this feeling of like a little piece of our heart kind of healed. Um, especially for my son, like seeing him, there's this picture of him when he met her in the hospital that he's just like, kind of like bowed over her. It still makes me cry because it's just, it was like the sweetest moment. And he, you could just tell there was just something in him that, that healed a little bit, you know? And again, not that he's forgotten, but like to get to see a healthy sister in the hospital and come home, I think just helped his heart feel like, oh, okay. Like things, things can be okay. They don't always go wrong, you know? Um, and to see the way he's with, like he is with her is just so tender and so sweet. Um, it's been interesting now and it breaks my heart almost every time she says it, but like, she's very emotional, our little, our little Kezia. Um, and she will sometimes like that we, we do highs and lows for instance, every day. Um, and her, (laughs) she's three and a half. So when I ask her her highs and lows every single night, she goes, my good low and my bad low. And I'm like, it's so funny. It's like the way she just is interpreting it. But a lot of times her bad low, which is her low, um, will be that she misses her sister. And it's like, she doesn't know her. She's never met her. I mean, we really, I mean, she doesn't get to hear about her that much, but it's like, she just knows, you know, that there's something special, I think, between like sister bond. Um, and that makes me sad because I'm like, I would have loved to see them, you know, growing up together. I have a sister um, and I loved having a sister and still do. And so I definitely grieve that a little bit that she won't ever know what that relationship is like with her sister. Um, but but it's also really sweet to kind of see sweet and actually like double-edged sword, but to see kind of what what life would have been like almost, you know, like I watch her in different stages because she's, she is quite different from my boys and think like, oh, wow, like Ayla would have done that, you know, and, and that's, that's a little hard as she's growing up. And it's something I didn't really expect um, because I'm like, oh, I've already done all the firsts, you know, the kindergarten, the tooth, like all of that, but it just feels a little different, you know, having a daughter now. So there's like, it almost makes me realize how much more we lost by losing her, but also getting to have that like kind of sweet joy of still getting to experience it. And I feel really fortunate because I know there's so many parents who can't 
have kids after or who are too afraid, you know, to do so. And so I'm thankful for her and and her name, like we got to, I wrote about it on my blog when she was born, but her name has a really sweet, special meaning that was like something I wrote in a journal when I was still pregnant with Ayla. And so she's just kind of always felt like this gift that we were meant to have. There is something about hearing you speak about your kids and, you know, I don't know them, (laughs) but I, you know, obviously follow you and follow your blog, but just there is this glow and this like magic energy. (laughs) Oh, Danielle, thank you so very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I learned so much and I really appreciate you being authentic and helping everyone because I think you have helped a number of, of people. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Moments with Candace Parker. Thank you so much, Danielle Walker. If you've got a question, a story, or a moment you'd like to share, please leave a voicemail at 732-889-3358. If you'd like to learn more about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media or on Instagram at WMN.media. You can also follow me, Candace, at Candace Parker on Instagram. Moments with Candace Parker is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Maddie Foley and Brittany Martinez with help from Alessandra Tejeda. Our executive producers are Robin Roberts and Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to our exclusive season sponsor, Capital One. See you later. I'm Haley O'Shaughnessy. I'm a recovering basketball writer. I'm Jordan Liggins. I'm an editor at Mojo. And together we're bringing you Spinsters. On our show, you can expect a mix of candid conversations, featured interviews, and some of our favorite reporters creating pieces just for this show. So make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at SpinstersBW, and we'll see you soon.